Hello and welcome to The Lancet Podcast. Richard Lane with you here on Friday, August the 19th. This week's podcast reflects the content of the latest issue of The Lancet, dated August the 20th to the 26th. It's a cardiology-themed issue which will be going to the European Society of Cardiology meeting taking place in Paris between August the 27th and the 31st. The specific focus of the podcast is an interview I've done with Professor John Cleland from the University of Hull about a potential new therapeutic option for the treatment of heart failure. And heart failure is covered in a four-part series in the issue. And I'm joined by our student intern, delighted to welcome Holly Bullock, who is a chemistry undergraduate at the University of Edinburgh. Help us out, Holly, by telling us, tell us about some of the content, the cardiology content, because this is a cardiology podcast. Tell us about the research articles, first of all, in the issue of The Lancet coming up August 20th to the 26th. The first one, dose-dependent augmentation of cardiac systolic function with the selective cardiac myosin activator omacamptive macabil, a first-in-man study. Then there's the effects of the cardiac myosin activator omacamptive macabil on cardiac function in systolic heart failure, a double-blind placebo-controlled crossover dose-ranging phase 2 trial. And sorry to interrupt you, Holly, that is the source of the author interview I'll be doing with Professor John Cleland in a moment. Following that is associations between C-reactive protein, coronary artery calcium and cardiovascular events, implications for the Jupiter population from MESA, a population-based cohort study. And finally, intravenous enexaparin or unfractionated heparin in primary PCI for ST elevation myocardial infarction the international randomised open-label ATOL trial. Thanks very much, Holly. We also publish in the issue a four-part series on heart failure. This is a dangerous and debilitating and quite common condition. It affects 1% of people in the United Kingdom, for example, and, soberingly, a third of people who develop heart failure will die within one year. And nearly 5 million Americans are affected by heart failure, although data are very scarce from developing countries. So, an interesting series on heart failure. Holly, read out the titles, if you would, of the four papers. The first paper, In Search of New Therapeutic Targets and Strategies for Heart Failure, Recent Advances in Basic Science. The second one is Medical Therapy for Chronic Heart Failure. The third, Implantable Cardioverted Defibrillators and Cardiac Resynchronisation Therapy. And finally, Telemedicine and Remote Management of Patients with Heart Failure. Thanks very much, Holly. And related to that first series article about future therapeutic developments, earlier I spoke to an author of one of the research articles, Professor John Cleland, and we discussed a study of which he is an author. This is a phase two clinical trial looking at a potentially new treatment approach for the treatment of systolic heart failure. Professor Cleland, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. You're one of the authors of a research article. We actually publish a pair of research articles concerning potentially a new mode of treatment for heart failure, for systolic heart failure. Before we go into the details of your paper, and I will ask you to touch on the other paper, which is related, although you're not an author on it, can you just tell us how much of a problem is heart failure worldwide? I mean, it's pretty common, isn't it? And I'm getting the impression that it's not particularly well managed. Well, I think that's correct. Heart failure probably affects about 10 million people within the European Union alone, therefore on a worldwide basis, many times that number. It is a disease that uh, tends to be associated with uh, growing older, although it can affect people at all ages from infancy 
onwards. And that creates a, a problem because, of course, the better we get at treating problems like hypertension and myocardial infarction, and the longer that people live, the greater the likelihood is that they're going to end up developing heart failure. And indeed, we and others have shown that uh, the vast majority of people who die subsequent to developing coronary artery disease die first develop heart failure, and heart failure is an important pathway by which the patient dies. So it is incredibly important, and it's the ultimate expression of cardiovascular disease. Most patients uh, with cardiovascular disease are going to die as a consequence of heart failure. Trying to wind the clock back uh, and manage the heart failure is extremely important for medicine and has been remarkably successful if you receive advanced treatment when I started uh, my research in heart failure in the 1980s, about one in three patients with a serious level of heart failure would survive two years. These days, with expert treatments, uh, we're talking about people potentially seven out of eight of those patients surviving two years and half of them surviving a decade. So very different, uh, provided you get expert treatment. Having said that, uh, many patients don't get expert treatment, and we know from a national audit of heart failure from England and Wales, which I think was a fine editorial in The Lancet uh, earlier this year uh, on the topic, we demonstrated that about 12%, so one in eight patients who was admitted with worsening heart failure to hospital would die in hospital, so it's a big cause of in-hospital death. And of those who survived to discharge, if they were under the age of 75, then one in four would be dead within a year, and more than one in two over the age of 75 would be dead within a year. So a huge problem, one of the commonest medical reasons for admission to hospital, and high uh, subsequent mortality. And I would say management is characterized by chaos and disorganization. So there is a big problem for uh, health services to manage heart failure properly. Tell us about this potential new class of drug. I can't even pronounce the drug in question. I'm going to ask you to do that. But, okay. th but, but, uh, but this is a new approach, isn't it? Because it's actually trying to really target, really activate the myosin, the heart muscle itself, to, to actually get better ejection, presumably, out of the heart, which is one of the major problems with heart failure, isn't it? Is that people have poor blood ejection from, from the ventricles. Yes, indeed. The name of the drug is Omicamptive Macarbal, and it's a cardiac myosin activator. Uh, you're quite right that with this drug, the scientists have gone back to the drawing board and said, well, what do we need and how do we make a designer molecule for a totally new mode of action drug to try and improve cardiac function? So, Heart failure, of course, is a systemic disease, and uh, when your heart fails, uh, the kidneys suffer, the bone marrow suffers, the lungs suffer, the livers suffer. So it is a systemic disease, but ultimately, yes, if you can fix the heart, then many of the secondary features of heart failure will improve. And so if we could improve the failing pump, then there is a hope that not only do you improve cardiac function, but all the other manifestations of heart failure. Cardiac and myosin are the uh, the powerhouse of muscle, cardiac muscle and skeletal muscle, but these drugs specifically target uh, cardiac muscle. I think that there are other molecules being developed to try and affect skeletal muscle, so potentially for patients with skeletal muscle 
weakness, there will be parallel molecules. But this one is specifically and only targeted cardiac myosin. So myosin and actin bind, and it's almost like pulling on a rope or uh, rowing, that they, there's a power stroke as the cardiac and myosin pull together the, the myocyte to produce myocardial contraction. And what these molecules do is that they enhance the uh, the strength of that binding, so they will, as it were, put more hands on the rope so that there is a more powerful pull from the muscle, which, unlike normal inotropic agents, isn't a sudden jerk and an acceleration of the pull that the contraction produces, but rather just a pull that goes on for longer. So if you can imagine if somebody's rowing, it's not that they're trying to row faster as they would with a a normal inotropic agent. This one is trying to almost slow the stroke down, but make the stroke go on for longer. And this is as oarsmen will tell you, often a more efficient long-term strategy to uh, win the race. These drugs cause the ventricle to contract for longer. That means that it empties more completely. You're getting more output with each stroke of the heart. Um, And it does that without increasing the energy. So it's using the same amount of ATP, the energy, uh, same amount of calcium, but just using it more efficiently to produce a greater output from the heart. So it shouldn't exhaust the heart as other inotropic agents might. And that's a really important point, isn't it? Because if you're going to increase energy and use up oxygen, you're at risk of making the heart ischemic. That's right. Other inotropic agents uh, do seem to cause deterioration in cardiac muscle function when used in the long term, and they have been associated with increases in morbidity and mortality. This is a totally new concept. Uh, We don't yet know what its effects on morbidity and mortality will be, but we can be hopeful that we're taking a totally different approach uh, and one which uh, in theory should, and theory, and in the limited practical experience that we've got, makes the heart more efficient. And therefore, If your heart is able to do more, perhaps it's not only is it going to do more for the same amount of energy, but it actually might start using less energy. So a bit like beta blockers, as we know, have been very good treatments for heart failure in terms of reducing sudden death and improving cardiac function. They perhaps do that by reducing the metabolic rate of the myocardium, the energy expenditure of the myocardium. These drugs might have a similar sorts of benefits. So not only improving cardiac function, but by improving efficiency might also protect the heart. Can you just briefly mention the data in your study? And you can also, if you'd like to briefly mention the other article as well, because we should stress the articles we're publishing, they are very early studies. Your study, Professor Cleland, is a phase two study. So it's primarily looking at safety and tolerability, isn't it, rather than, rather than efficacy? Yeah. Do you want to just briefly mention uh, the structure and, and, and results from this phase two study? There are two studies. There's a phase one study conducted by my colleague from the United States, uh, John Tierlink, and his team, although most of the uh, work was actually done in the UK, uh, led by Cyril Clark's team in Manchester. That was a, a healthy volunteer study, and basically in this healthy volunteer study, they showed that the drug performs as expected and prolongs left ventricular systole. They identified doses which uh, caused side effects uh, and therefore identified a 
safe range of the drug to give to uh, patients with heart failure. I should say that the drug at the moment is being given intravenously. It's highly absorbed when given orally. The problem is that almost it's too well absorbed so that you get spikes of uh, absorption where you potentially get too big an effect and then the effect wears off. So at the moment they're working on an oral formulation but a few years off but this is very much a drug which is being developed intravenously because it's just easier to sort out the pharmacology uh, when given intravenously but there's every expectation that this will have an oral compound in due course. These Two studies were done with an intravenous agent. They were both uh, dose escalation studies, placebo-controlled. The Healthy Volunteer study identified uh, the uh, maximum tolerated doses. It seemed that when you went too high with the dose, you got great prolongation of systole and there might not have been enough uh, perfusion time because most of coronary perfusion occurs during diastole. And by shortening the coronary perfusion time, it may have caused uh, myocardial ischemia. So that is one of the limitations of this molecule, that if you try and give too much, you may cause that sort of problem. When it came to the phase two study in heart failure, this was conducted in 45 patients, uh, altogether with 151 infusions of active drug or placebo. We used echocardiography um, to assess the effects of the drug on cardiac function. And what we demonstrated was the expected effects uh, of the drug in terms of prolonging systole, improving systolic function in terms of ejection fraction. And that occurred uh, at a plasma concentration around about 300 nanograms per mil, which is only 25% of the sorts of levels that we begin to see toxicity at, which is around about 1,200 nanograms per mil. So it does look as though there is an adequate therapeutic or potentially therapeutic to uh, toxic dose ratio. So there is a big enough therapeutic window for us to to work on. It seemed safe and seemed effective at improving cardiac function. What next? Clearly more research, more phase two into phase three. What sort of timescale are we looking at potentially if this new approach is going to be successful? Well, I think that uh, a larger phase 2b clinical trial is already planned and is likely to start enrolling patients next year. I think if that study is successful, then uh, we will be rapidly moving on to definitive phase 3 study. I could imagine the companies applying for a license probably three to four years from now. I think it will take that long before it gets into clinical practice, assuming the trials are effective. For the oral compound, I think it's going to take a bit longer. We're looking at a five to 10 year program before we would see an oral compound license and prescribable. They're very interesting studies. We should stress they are very preliminary. These two studies that you've kindly described for us are that. They are the beginning of what could be a very exciting new approach for treating this uh, quite common problem of uh, systolic heart disease. But in the meantime, Professor John Cleland, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thank you very much indeed. Well, that's it for this week. Many thanks again to John Cleland and to Holly. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. And goodbye from me. See you next time.